You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. It's a pleasure to be here with you. I do know quite a lot of you, actually, we've met at various times. But if you don't know me, as Bob said, I'm one of the pastors at Calvary Chapel Hastings, and I do a lot of speaking and writing on various different issues. As Bob said, I've written a lot on the issue of human identity, and I speak a lot on Israel. Uh, I don't like controversy. (laughs) But those two things do bring a lot of that as we speak on them. But however, I'm sure we're speaking amongst friends this morning, so we are going to look quite in depth at the subject of Israel. It's a very timely, uh, well, a time to look at this subject with everything that's been going on. Let me just open in prayer, and then we'll jump straight into our message this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, so much for your word. I pray, Lord, that you would now just open our ears, Lord, open our hearts and our minds to understand and obey the things that are contained in it. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. So we are talking about Israel, and I would say there's probably never a more important time to make sure that what we know and understand about Israel is correct. There are lots of issues that come up when you try and study the topic of Israel. I'm sure many of you are aware of this. Just in the last few weeks, uh, we've seen... Again, well, for the last few years, there's been a shocking rise in anti-Semitism around the world. In the last few weeks, we've had the the Hanukkah stabbings. I don't know if any of you uh, have been following that news story. Videos of Jewish people being randomly beaten on the streets of New York are all too frequent now. We had anti-Semitic attacks in London, and just this stuff just seems to be coming very normal, if I could say it like that, to the point that most people just sort of, oh, another news report on that. We shrug our shoulders and we move on. We've had the whole of following the election debates and the political stuff that we've had in the country for the last six months and the anti-Semitism scandals in some of the highest levels of government. Now, many students of history and many in the Jewish community are saying that this feels eerily reminiscent of the 1930s. Now, we should really, that should really make us stand up and take note if you know anything about what happened shortly after there. However, it's not just anti-Semitism. That's just one area that we look at when we're studying the topic of Israel. Israel in itself is actually one of the largest topics in the Bible. Now, a lot of people, when I say that, they, they say, well, what about Jesus? And to that, I always say, I don't really think the two are separate because the story of Israel is the story of Israel's Messiah, which is Jesus. The moment we start to try and separate that, we've made the error and we've removed Jesus from his Jewish identity. We must not do that. The subject is often ignored. Many people consider it too controversial, too misunderstood. Uh, It's clouded, obviously, by sort of the rhetoric to do with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. All the political baggage that people put onto this topic quite often means that church leaders or we just don't like to discuss it. People get very fiery about it. I don't know if you've ever had one of those conversations. Heated emotions seem to come to the surface very quickly, almost as much as they do if you talk about Donald Trump in any way. People just kind of go mad about it. But it's one of those issues. However, this is a biblical issue, so we do need to address it in some depth. So what I want to try and do is give you a brief outline of a biblical theology of Israel in the plan of God from the Bible. Now, I can assure you a proper understanding of Israel 
will enrich your Bible study, it will equip you to understand the times much better, and it will also help you just to marvel at the sovereignty of God and his hand in history and all the things that he has done. Uh, I was in Israel just a few months back, and it's always an amazing experience if you go and study uh, the word of God in the, in the land of Israel. It's not uncommon when you get off a plane in Israel to see people prostrating themselves on the ground and kissing the floor. This is a common sort of action of the Jewish people sometimes when they make Aliyah, when they return to the land of Israel. And it shows you the deep longing for that land that is expressed in the heart of these people. And if you've ever been on a Christian tour to Israel, it's not uncommon to hear Christians sort of slightly bemused at the situation and say things like, I feel like I've just come home. And I've heard that exact phrase many times on a Christian tour. These are the sorts of things. Now, some people don't know quite what to make of these sort of statements. Uh, that's hopefully what we can, <laughs> we can share a little bit on this morning. Let me read to you a couple of verses. In 1 Chronicles 17, King David famously cried out in prayer. He said, And what one nation on earth is like your people Israel? What one nation on earth is like your people Israel? Ezekiel described the land of Israel as the glory of all lands. Uh, It says in Deuteronomy 11, Moses wrote this. He says, a land for which the Lord your God cares, the eyes of the Lord are always on it. Now, as Christians, we need to sort of ask, what are we to make of statements like this? The glory of all lands, the eyes of the Lord are always on it. Is this just sort of Old Testament language? Does it have no relevance for today? Is it actually saying that the Jewish people or the land of Israel is better than other lands? I don't think that's what it's saying. Um, As far as natural beauty, there are some beautiful areas in Israel. There's also lots of barren wilderness in Israel. You know, majestic, you know, it doesn't really compare to, you know, the Canadian Rockies or the vastness of the, the Grand Canyon in those respects. So it's not really just talking about things like that. There is something much different going on. Now, for many, when you say the term Israel, a lot of people associate it with war, don't they? With conflict, with strife, with heated arguments and division and all these sorts of things. To make sense of these sort of statements in the Bible with what we have today and what we understand from history, we need a theology that looks at both the past, the present, and the future of Israel. Now, theologians in the Christian church were generally very good at the past of Israel, We spend a lot of time, we go through the Old Testament systematically, we understand that. We're pretty good at the future within, you know, if you're a sort of a premillennial type thinker, we we focus a lot on the future. We're generally terrible at the present to know what to do with with Israel because Israel's an unbelieving nation. Uh, We don't quite know how that fits into our theology. This is one area that we need to work on. We'll touch on it today. But I think we can all agree there is something unique about the land of Israel. It is the land of the patriarchs. This is the land that was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's the land of the prophets. This is where the great prophets, Elijah, Elisha, Jeremiah, Isaiah, this is where they lived, they prophesied, and they conducted their ministries. It's a land of miracles. This is where the Jordan River parted, where the walls of Jericho fell, all these great Old Testament stories we read of. It's also the land of the psalmists, This is where David and Asaph and all these great uh, people who composed the sweet songs of Israel lived and got their inspiration. It's the land of the kings, David, Solomon, Hezekiah, the bad kings also, Ahab and these people. It's ultimately, for us, it is the land where God dwelt. Remember, he dwelt in the tabernacle first, he dwelt in the temple above the mercy seat in the holy of holies. 
For Christians, this land holds equal significance. This is the land, ultimately, where the Word became flesh. From John chapter 1, we know that. It is the land of Jesus. It is the land of the Messiah. He was born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, around the shores of the Galilee. He ministered his public ministry to the people. It was the soil in the Garden of Gethsemane that soaked up his tears, and the ground at Golgotha that absorbed his blood on that fateful night. Ultimately, it is from this land that he ascended into heaven to the right hand of his father, and it is to this land that it is prophesied that he will one day return. So those factors alone mean that we need to take Israel as a biblical theme very, very seriously. And like I've said before, as you do this, I can guarantee the Bible will open up for you in many, many other ways. You'll start seeing things, understanding themes, understanding the teaching of Jesus better, understanding the Apostle Paul's writings much better, when you have a theology that has a broad, uh, an overview of Israel. Because you, you, you put me in a conversation with someone, one of the first things I'll try and find out is where they are on these sorts of issues. Because by knowing that, I can pretty much tell you where they're going to be on most other issues theologically. It doesn't always work, there's always exceptions, but as a general rule, because Israel is so integrated into every other part of theology that you can actually find out quite a lot just by knowing someone's view on Israel. But it's not just the land, it's the people too that are actually unique. Years ago, the, uh, the novelist Leo Tolstoy, he asked this question in one of his works. He said, what is the Jew? And he answered, the Jew is the symbol of eternity. He is the one who for so long has guarded the prophetic message and transmitted it to all mankind. A people such as this can never disappear. The Jew is eternal. He is the embodiment of eternity. Or as Mark Twain famously put it, he says, All things are mortal but the Jew. All other forces pass but he remains. What is the secret of his immortality? Now, as far as I know, Mark Twain never really got a good answer to that. But the answer is actually very simple. The secret to Jewish immortality in that sense that he's using it there lies in the fact that the people were born out of a covenant with God. They are truly a covenant people, and that is why. There's an expression in Israel, they, they will often say, you'll hear it on political speeches and at festivals, they'll say, Am Yisrael Chai, and it means the people of Israel live. And it's an expression of their history. And as you, if you know any of their history, just intense persecution for thousands and thousands of years, but yet the people of Israel live. This is what Mark Twain's getting at. Why, is this, why are they such a persistent race in this sense? There's no sort of earthly explanation for it. The explanation lies in the fact that they were born out of a covenant with God. And God, who made that covenant, is eternal. And his word is also eternal. That is the reason. And that is the answer that we have to give people let me show you this. And this is also the reason why we see anti-Semitism in the world. The two things are very much connected. You could say that this is actually evidence for me that the God's, God's word is true, or else this people would have long vanished from the fate of the earth, just like every one of their ancient neighbors did. Romans 9. You can turn to Romans. We'll be in Romans a little bit this morning. The answer to this question lies in the spiritual realm. The Apostle Paul writes in the book of Romans... Uh, he says this in Romans 9, verses 3 to 5. He says, To them belong the adoption as sons, the glory and the covenants, the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh who is over all God blessed forever. 
It says, to the Jewish people belong the covenants. And the, it's a continual present tense there. It's not something speaking about in the past they had the covenants, not just the Mosaic covenant, all of the covenants, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the new covenant. As Christians, we are generally trained to sort of think in terms of the new covenant. Because like just when we take communion, it's you know, shedding of blood for the remission of sins poured out through the new covenant. So we're very familiar with that. We understand that and we benefit from the spiritual blessings of the new covenant. But make no mistake, that covenant was originally made in Jeremiah 31 with the people of Israel. And Romans 9, and the Apostle Paul says, to them belong the covenants. They are still the, the, the you know, they still belong to Israel. And yes, we are graciously grafted in, we benefit from them in many glorious ways, but the moment we start to say that they are now ours, we move into an area that we'll talk about in a bit, where our theology starts to veer off course. Now, one of the best ways to study the Bible and to have a good overview of the Bible, and I find this a lot, someone asked me just last week, a pastor asked me, what's the best way to get people excited and to understand the Bible? Because in a period of a year, you know, you, some, some, it's quite hard to cover a lot of the Bible if you're just doing it Sunday mornings and these sorts of things. One of the best ways is to study the covenants. Because the covenants are the Bible. A covenant is an agreement between God. It's how he mediates his blessings to the world. And there are a number of covenants. But the foundational one is what we call the Abrahamic covenant. If you're not familiar with that, you'll find it in Genesis chapter chapter 12, Genesis 15, and Genesis 17. And it's through this covenant that all the other covenants find their foundation. Because in the covenant God made with Abraham, he promised a land, he promised a seed, and he promised a blessing. And the other covenants in the Bible merely expand these three principles. The new covenant expands the blessing. The land covenant expands the land aspect. And the Davidic covenant expands the people and the king aspect. And that, you study those covenants, just four of them like that. Now, yes, you've got the Mosaic covenant, that's slightly different, but those four covenants will take you from Genesis to Revelation. I mean, what we see in the book of Revelation is the fulfillment, the final stage when all of these covenantal promises are fulfilled. And it's just four covenants. And if you study them, I can guarantee you, you'll have a better grasp of the Bible than you could probably get in two years of seminary. And, and I teach uh, at seminary level, I, I understand it's just because it gives you a good overview of the scriptures and you can't miss things. You study the covenants, you can't miss out what to do with Israel. You can't miss out what to do with King David. Is Jesus a descendant of David? You, you can't miss the future language in the book of Revelation when it says the kingdom of this world are now transferred to Christ as he comes as a conquering king. These are things you have to deal with when you study the covenants and they are so integral to the Bible. But... Because the Jewish people have this covenant attached to them, this is one of the reasons why we see such a satanic onslaught against the Jewish people throughout history. It is reflective of the attempt by Satan to discredit God. Now, anti-Semitism has been in the news a lot lately, particularly in our own, yeah, our own news in, in the UK because of the, because of the politics involved. And I've listened to a lot. I've read a lot about these things, but one of the things you'll notice as you watch sort of politicians and people uh, giving their various different opinions, none of them understand the reason, because that is only discerned with spiritual eyes, because it's connected to what we're talking about right here. Okay, it's because it is God's character, God's nature, ultimately God's word, which is at stake. 
We have to understand that. And that takes us right back to Genesis, doesn't it? Because what was the foundational thing that Satan always wanted to attack? Has God really said? And that is connected with the people of Israel in many, many ways. Uh, Turn briefly to Jeremiah 31 with me. And we'll just look at one other scripture before we go back to Romans. The Jews have had a terrible history in many ways. They've also given the world much in the way of blessings. People have tried to destroy the Jews many, many times throughout their history. But none have been successful and none ever will be successful. Jeremiah 31, verses 35 and 36. Jeremiah 31 is where we find the new covenant, first promised to Israel. But at the end of that passage, the prophet says this, Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel will cease from being a nation before me forever. If the sun, the moon and the stars can be removed and stop shining, then and only then will Israel cease from being a nation before me. Now that is a statement that people need to deal with theologically in the world. And we need to understand what it's getting at here. It does mean that obviously the satanic onslaught will never succeed, but ultimately we know that Christ has already won victory for the cross, on the cross. But it does mean the church needs to understand what we think of Israel, what we do with Israel in the land today, how we make sense of Israel's unbelief at the moment. All of these things are connected, and they are a fascinating study. We're going to look at it a little bit now. To turn with me back to Romans 11, We're going to go through four verses that I believe give you a basic outline of how to think about Israel, a basic understanding of the theology of Israel. Romans 11, 25 to 29. Let's just read read these four verses, and then we'll, we'll make comment as we go through. The Apostle Paul writes, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion, he will remove ungodliness from Jacob, this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers, for the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. We learn a lot about Israel and what we should think about Israel. And remember, this is the, this is the book of Romans. This is like the foundational book of Christian doctrine. We need to understand this. And in Romans 9, 10, and 11, Paul has been dealing with the, the issue of Israel, past, present, and future, as long as for the rest of the book he's been dealing with salvation, God's promises, and all these sorts of things. And he connects them all to Israel. Because God made promises to Israel, then if his promises to Israel don't hold true, then what on earth is our security for anything else holding true? But as he proves here, it's integral to his argument that these promises stand. But the first thing we learn in the first few verses, first few words of verse 25, I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed so that you're not wise in your own estimation. What he's basically saying is there that the Gentile church is prone towards ignorance and arrogance regarding the issue of Israel. Because pretty much soon after this is writing, and and before it once previously, all Jews had been expelled from Rome. 
So that's the feeling of Jewish people, you know, there's anti-Semitism rife uh, around this sort of time that Paul is writing. Ignorance and arrogance regarding Israel. Now, unfortunately, that is a very good description of the church's history as it has its views about uh, Israel. There's a doctrine, we call it replacement theology, is his popular name. It goes by the term of supersessionism or fulfillment theology. In more academic literature, it's all the same thing. What this basically says is that Israel is now done away with. They've served their purpose. They ultimately failed and they had Christ killed. And God has now replaced Israel with the church. We are now the sole beneficiaries of all his covenantal promises. Not any of the curses, they are still on Israel, but just the blessings we take for ourselves, and that is it. Now, I say that slightly tongue-in-cheek because I I disagree so strongly with that view, but this is a very, very popular view. I would say it's probably the mainstream view in Christian denominations in the UK, and it has been the majority view throughout all of church history, pretty much starting from the 2nd to 3rd century and it only suffered a setback with the sort of onset of the Puritans into the, the early sort of fundamentalist revivalist movements of the 18th, 19th, and 20th century. But still today, it's a very, very common view. One of the shameful things that's happened with this belief is that when you are willing to say that the Jews are done away with and that they are being judged for their sins... The natural response to that is, well, what do you do with these people then that we still have on the earth? And the answer quite often from the Christian church has been, we need to try and get rid of them because it's an embarrassment. This is, unfortunately, the answer. It's been said that you can trace a direct line from Augustine to Auschwitz. Augustine, the fourth century church father who is pretty much fundamental to most of Christian and Western thought, and he... Some of his works are very, very good, and they're amazing to read. His view was that we should keep Jews alive as a perpetual witness to what happens when you disobey God, in some respects, putting it simply, but that's basically what he said. And many people after him took that a little bit more seriously than others. Some people added their own things to that. Everything we know, ghettos, yellow stars, pointy hats, segregation, banishments, job restrictions, synagogue burnings. Now, we attribute most of those things to the Third Reich, don't we? That's how we see them in our history. Unfortunately, every one of those things was actually a European Christian initiative long before the Third Reich ever came to power. Now, that is something that should really shock us. Most people are not aware of this history, but this is the history. Let me read to you two quotes. I'll tell you who but tell you who they are by afterwards. They are worse than wild beasts. This is talking about the Jewish people, obviously. And for no reason at all, with their own hands, they murder their own offspring to worship the avenging devils who are the foes of our life. The synagogues of the Jews are homes of idolatry and devils. I hate the Jews, for they have the law, and they insult it. And you might notice where it says their hands, they murder their own offspring. This is a, one of the very early, what we call a blood libel. Blood libels are seen all throughout history. In the medieval times, it was the Jewish people. They murdered Christian children, apparently, to get their Passover drinks for. Um, we, they were blamed for the bubonic plague. We see it today. I could find you many of these that are still actively promoted in most of the Islamic world today. These things are very, very real. But this one that I just read, that was by a man named John Chrysostom. He's known as the golden-mouthed preacher of the early church. 
an early church father revered by many for his wonderful oratory skills and preaching and defense of Christ. But yet, there's this dark side to these beliefs. Let me read you another one. Now just behold these miserable, blind, and senseless people. Their blindness and arrogance are as solid as an iron mountain. And therefore be on your guard against the Jews, knowing that whatever they have their, wherever they have their synagogues, nothing is found but a den of devils in which sheer self-glory, conceit, lies, blasphemy, and defaming of God, and men are practiced most maliciously. Set fire to their synagogues or their schools, and bury with dirt whatever will not burn, so that no man will ever again see a stone of cinder of them. Second, I advise that their houses also be razed and destroyed. Anyone know who, wrote, who said that? That was the great reformer, Martin Luther, a man who we celebrate in our churches. We hold Reformation days, don't we? We celebrate his work. And don't, don't, make, you know, don't get me wrong, I'm not, I'm not discounting a lot of the stuff that was achieved through the Reformation. I myself have quoted many times in a sermon that great quote by Martin Luther, here I stand, I can do no other, my conscience is captive to the word of God. But you won't find these quotes of Martin Luther being used so much, but this was a part of his theology. He started very favorable towards the Jews. As he realized that they weren't going to accept his preaching, he gradually sort of turned in his life, and he ended up preaching this. And in fact, in the Nuremberg trials, when they were trying the Nazis for doing the things they did, they pointed to Martin Luther as their inspiration. You see how these things are sort of connected, and this is what this is, replacement theology taken to its logical conclusion. And church history has a, a very bad uh, history when it comes to this. And I believe this just shows us that that very first warning when Paul says, I do not want you to be uninformed of this mystery, so you're not wise in your own estimation, so you don't put yourselves above these people, we've fallen down at the very first hurdle. So we need to kind of come back to this and have a proper understanding. It says in verse 18 of Romans 11, do not be arrogant against the branches. You see, we need to, yes, we can look at them. They did reject Jesus Christ en masse, and today they still do. And they're very active in not allowing gospel work to happen in some respects. But we need to understand that in the context of a proper biblical theology, not through the eyes of replacement theology, which will end up with sort of some of the ridiculous extremes that we have. So let's look at the next thing. Back to Romans 11.25. It says that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. You see, Israel as an elect national ethnic group has been partially hardened. And what does that mean? Well, it means that there's a remnant, Paul himself being one of these remnants, who, still, who has believed. All through the Old Testament, you'll find there was always a remnant of faithful people within Israel, even amongst all the apostasy that we, that we see. But these things do not discount the fact that God made a covenant with these people. At the present time, they have been hardened. But we must understand what the hardening was for. And this is the mystery that Paul is talking about here. Their current state of hardening was for our benefit, so that the gospel message would be taken around the globe. Look what he says in Romans chapter 11, verses 11 and 12. Did they stumble so as to fall? Did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles. By their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. And if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? So what he's basically saying is because of this partial hardening and the rejection, we see this in the book of Acts. 
to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. As the Jewish people rejected, the church was scattered abroad, those early Jewish disciples of Christ, and they took the gospel message with them, and the world was turned upside down, and history as we know it was completely changed as the message of the gospel went out. But Paul still has to warn the church just because of that, understand it and don't be arrogant against the natural branches. Understand, if their transgression was for our blessing, imagine what's going to happen when they, when they accept the Lord. He gets on to that a little bit. Let's just read it. Verse 11, verse 15, chapter 11, verse 15. If their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, that's, what, that's the, the hardening aspect, because they rejected Christ, the gospel went out and reconciled the world to Christ in some respects, if such a bad sin can have such a good effect, it says, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Imagine what's going to happen when they accept the Messiah. It's going to literally be life from the dead. Now, a lot of people are confused about that statement, thinking, is it talking about salvation in the sort of sense that we always think about salvation, don't we? You get saved, you go to heaven. That's pretty much what we're talking about. That's not the concept it's referring to here. It's saying when this finally happens, he's going to talk about this in the next few verses, that will literally be life from the dead because that will be the ushering in of the messianic kingdom when that happens. That, that is what he's referring to in these sorts of statements. It will be the time when all of those covenantal promises that we find in the Bible come to their fruition, when they find the fulfillment. This is what the messianic age is all about. But let's look at another aspect from Romans 11. So we've seen that they're hardened, We've seen that that hardening is partial, but now we also see that that hardening is temporary because it says, until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. The, par- the hardening will happen until. Now, until, when you use the word until, you're generally referring to one state of affairs continuing until it changes, and then you have another state of affairs. And this is what this is referring to here. The Lord uses this sort of language all the time in the Bible. Matthew 23 From now on I say, you will not see me until you see, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now Paul mentions this phrase, fullness of the Gentiles. And this is, it's an unusual phrase and it seems to sort of imply a numerical uh, amount of Gentiles that will come into the kingdom. The fullness of the Gentiles. Now this is what is happening in this present age. Acts 15, 14, it says God is taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. This is the fullness of the Gentiles being fulfilled as we speak. You may be familiar with the Jesus Christ term, the times of the Gentiles. Do you remember that from Luke 21? The times of the Jerusalem will be trodden down until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So you have both the fullness of the Gentiles and the times of the Gentiles. These two things are referring to the same time period just through slightly different angles. One is numerical on the people, and one is chronological on the times. We know that the times of the Gentiles lasts pretty much up until the second coming, as Jerusalem is continually dominated by foreign powers, which will happen right up until the return of Jesus. So the fullness sort of seems to coincide with the end of the times of the Gentiles. Now, if you know anything about biblical prophecy, you'll know that when Jesus returns at the end of the time of the Gentiles, he returns pretty much, if you read the scriptures, it seems to be, to rescue the Jewish people from a war that is being waged upon them by the surrounding nations, by all those nations that have gathered together against Israel 
Satan's last attempt to try and dis to break God's covenantal promises to the Jewish people. Now, you can read about this in Zechariah 12. It says, I'll make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all the nations. I will bring all the nations together against Jerusalem. Now, you don't have to look too far today to see how easily that will take place. In 2019, the UN, which represents all nations, they made over 18 anti-Israel resolutions, many of them farcical and laughable. They made one against Iran in that same time, one against North Korea in that same time, none against people like Hamas. Um, they've just welcomed another dictator onto their Human Rights Council in the last few weeks. Just shows you how very easy it would be for this to happen. The nations are gathered together against Jerusalem. And yes, you can always find a political you know, perspective from someone that will give a reason why this is the case. I'm not saying discount them, analyze them, weigh them, take them for what they are, but we need to see with spiritual eyes because our biblical worldview is more than just the current world system. We have to understand the current world system in light of God's revelation. And that is what we do. That we don't make rash judgments. We don't do newspaper exegesis. We don't go into the sensational of prophecy, but we have to have a theology that makes space for these issues. And I believe in, Paul, in Romans 11, this is what Paul is giving us in a very simplified way. You, I'm sure a lot of you have just been following uh, the strike on the, uh, the Al-Quds general, the Iranian guard general that has happened at the moment. Now, a few interesting, obviously I've read a lot about it. Some of it's just laughable, some of it's good, some of it's bad. But one of the things that struck me was one of the main responses from the Iranian not the people, the Iranian uh, leadership, has been to threaten Israel, which it always does, obviously, but that is, they have said, they've quoted, Israel is within our reach. And it always seems to come back to Israel at some point, and I can tell you it always will come back to Israel. And actually, when Christ actually comes back, it is related to this issue of Israel. So we need to understand this. Let's just have a little look. We'll do a few, couple, couple more points on this. Verse 26, it says, And so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion, he will remove godliness from, under, from Jacob. So we have a partial hardening, it is temporary hardening, until the times and the fullness of the Gentiles are fulfilled, and then it says all Israel will be saved. Now this is a few words in the English and in the Greek, but books and books and books have been written of people trying to figure out what they mean by all Israel here. What does it mean? And it, I find it slightly amusing because <laughs> why don't we just take the simplest option and say that all Israel just means Israel, <laughs> like it has done for the previous 10 times that he's used it in these, two, in these chapters and pretty much over 70 times in the New Testament when the word is used. It's talking about the ethnic nation of Israel. Now, it's not talking about a universal kind of option that every Jew who's ever lived is going to be saved regardless of whether they've believed in Jesus. It's referring to the group of Jewish people who are alive at this time of history when the times of the Gentiles comes to a close. It says the deliverer will come from Zion. Now, who is the deliverer and where is Zion? The deliverer is the Lord Jesus Christ. Zion is that geographical location. It is Israel. More poignantly, it is Jerusalem. 
the national regeneration and salvation of Israel is one of the most recorded themes and hopes of the prophets. You cannot read any, pretty much as far as I'm aware, any Old Testament prophet, whether it be a major or a minor one, without having the theme of the end time salvation of Israel and restoration of Israel to their land come up. It always comes up at some point. And the Apostle Paul seems to know that here. But what he does is very interesting because the argument you get from a lot in the church is, yes, but that's Old Testament. Things have changed now because Christ has come. And there's a tiny bit of truth in what they're saying in some respects, but that's always the way, isn't it? There's a tiny bit of truth which makes it more palatable. But Paul, I think, preempts those arguments because in the very next verse, in verse 27, he says, this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. That's a quote from Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31, to be precise. A quote from the passage that deals with the new covenant. And remember I said the new covenant is the covenant that we are grafted into in that sense. We get our blessings from that. So it's a covenant that no one argues is still very much in effect. You cannot say that it's an Old Testament thing. But what Paul is skillfully doing here is he's tying the salvation of Israel in these end times not to the Mosaic covenant that people argue is gone, not to any of the old things that we could class as Old Testament. He's tying it to the new covenant the covenant that Christ inaugurated with his blood that is still active and redeemed in that sense. So you cannot argue that this doesn't relate to today. That means that all of us as Christians who benefit from the new covenant have to have an understanding of what this means for Israel. And Paul is saying that the future salvation of Israel is part of the new covenant. Yes, the the new covenant is inaugurated today, but it hasn't had its final consummation in many of its aspects yet. There are still promises as part of that covenant that remain to be fulfilled and we're seeing the chronology of when they will be fulfilled when the fullness of the Gentiles has come at the time of the times of the end of times of the Gentiles when that hardening is lifted from Israel as the Messiah comes down in glory to fight for his people to get rid of those nations that are trying to destroy Israel and then it says that they will look upon him whom they pierced and he will pour out with a spirit of supplication and grace and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and that is the moment And as Paul writes, that moment when Israel accepts their Messiah will literally be life from the dead. And that will be it, because this is the kingdom age we're moving into now, as we move into this era era of history. And it's an amazing story that we have here in the Bible. Now, let's go on a little further. Let's look at verse uh, 28. It says, From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of of the fathers. So we learn here that unbelieving Jews are our beloved enemies. Now that's a very, the language is supposed to sort of shock you there because it's it's very common in biblical languages. Well, we have it, we call it hyperbole today. You're making a, a big point to get people to understand because a beloved enemy doesn't really make, you know, the two things kind of seem antithetical, don't they? But what he's saying here is from the standpoint of the gospel, they seem to be acting like enemies in the sense that they are rejecting the gospel in many ways on large and on mass. Now, not all of them, like, like Paul said, there's always a remnant. But then he goes on, he says, but you can't just leave it there. And th- this is one of the things that the church has always said about Jews, you know, they're Christ killers. This has been an anti-Semitic trope that has been totted out through history many, many times. They're Christ killers. And again, Paul here is arguing against any sort of arrogance that would lead to that sort of a statement. Because in the very next statement, he says, from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved 
for the sake of the fathers. Now, what are the fathers? That's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They are the patriarchs. He's referring back to those first covenants that he made. He's saying they are still a people in covenant with their God. And yes, they are hardened right now. So it seems like they're acting against the gospel, but have a bigger and better understanding using my full progressive revelation that we have. Because I've just told you this partial, partial hardening is only temporary. And one day it's going to cease, and that is going to be the ushering in of the age that you wait for along with them. So until that point, your job is to make them jealous. We read that earlier, didn't we? Part of the mission of the church is to make the Jewish people jealous. Now, what jealous of what? The point is to make them jealous that we are worshipping and living in relationship with the Jewish Messiah to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, that's not going to happen when we're standing in the pulpit reading, you know, teaching a theology like those quotes I read you earlier. They're not going to be jealous of that. That is not Paul's heart. I don't believe that is Jesus' heart. Again, it's a, t- it's a time where we need to sort of check the, the things that we believe and teach in the church. They are enemies for our sake, and they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. And it's only when we understand that that we will be able to love Israel in a Pauline way that actually does provoke them to jealousy and want them, cause them to seek Jesus as Messiah. And that is happening. There has been a lot of you know, real rise in the amount of Jewish people coming to know the Lord in the last five or six years. A church that has become arrogant against the natural branches because of their unbelief, a church that actively promotes uh, theology that leads to anti-Semitism, stands very little chance of provoking Israel into a state of jealousy. So that's a practical thing that we can do in the church. Now let's look at this last verse. This will be our last, my last point on this. Verse 29, it says, For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Now, if you've been in Christian church or the Christian world for any period of time, you've probably heard this verse quoted usually in the debate between do the gifts still continue today or do they not, between sort of cessationism and continuationism. And it's usually quoted in the sense that, of course, all the gifts, the spiritual gifts, usually referring to tongues and all, all the sign gifts, that if you, if you know that debate, that's what it's referring to. I always hear this verse quoted in that debate. It's got nothing to do with that debate. Now, yes, you can make an application. That's fine. I don't argue with that. The context of this quote is to do with Israel. As it's why we find it right here in the text. The gifts in the calling of God is referring to the calling, the election, and the blessings that have been gifted to Israel through those covenants. It says they are irrevocable. Again, another very stern, st- uh, strong statement implying that you cannot just take these things from one people and transplant them onto another people. It doesn't work like that. They cannot be taken away. They will have their fulfillment in time to come. The promises of God concerning Israel are certain, for the word of God cannot be broken. That's what we have. His promises are sure. What does it say in the Old Testament? Not one word of his good promise failed. That's as true today as it was then, and it will be true in the future. So what we have in these four verses, and this is just four verses we've looked at, we've had a basic outline of a biblical theology of Israel. We've seen the election in the past, into the present, through the times of exile even, right up to Israel that we have today, which is in unbelief. 
We know this hardness and blindness is temporary. It will come to an end one day. And then we have a look into the future, into the kingdom age. This is the story of Israel. But it's not really a story just about Jewish people. It's not a story about the church. It's not just a story about one nation. Ultimately, it is a story about God. And that is what we have to understand. You remember he said, I didn't choose you, Israel, because you're better than all other people. It's because I set my love upon you. Because it's God. The whole story of the Bible is a God that wants to come down and bless his people. A God that came down to make a covenant with his people, whereby he would fix the world and bring them into this messianic kingdom, this age, where he would rule, ultimately, from Zion. It says in Isaiah chapter 2 that the law will go forth from Zion. He will judge between nations, rendering justice and all these things that the, the world seems to crave, but they don't know how to get. The answer to that is found in the Christian gospel, pinpoint it into the person of Jesus Christ. This is our story. And I say we should let it be a story that we know better than any other story. It should be a book that we read and reread, one that we are telling to people whenever and wherever we have the opportunity, because quite literally, it is not only the most exciting story in the world, it is the story, it is God's story. And it is, as Paul said, it will be life from the death for people. Now let me end with just point of application. What is our mandate as a, as a church towards the people of Israel in the present state as we see today? There are a number of things that we can do to fulfill our biblical mandate towards Israel. The first is to take that command to make them jealous seriously. It's a command that we find in the Bible, in the New Testament, to the Christian church, to make them jealous. This means showing them the love of the Jewish Messiah through our words, through our deeds, and through our actions. Now, it shouldn't be hard. We should seek to do that to every group of people and all people as we represent Christ. So, but we need to be, you know, it seems to be that we forget about that group and everything else happens. But let's make sure we understand that. Second thing I would say is that we need to stand against anti-Semitism in all its forms, but particularly Christian anti-Semitism. Understanding our history. Understanding why when we talk to a Jewish person about Jesus, they react very, very violently, or not violently, but as in emotionally, because we, we are often we're ignorant of the history that's gone forth, because they have, we don't understand that Christ for them means persecution and death and people killing them. So we have to be sensitive to that and move past that in a way. We stand against those things now. We make our voices heard. Romans 15.27 is another command to us. It says that we are to provide the Jewish people with physical blessings. And this is one that, again, is often overlooked. It says because we share in their spiritual blessings, salvation, the new covenant, we are to provide them with physical blessings. So, you know, we may, in our church, we, we have a principle that 10% or a certain percentage, I don't know the exact number, of our communal tithe gets sent to Jewish to ministries that are ministering to Jewish people, just as standard. Everyone who tithes that as part of that is as standard as the church. To try that is our way of trying to fulfil that, and people are free to do what they want individually, of course, too. The next thing is that we should show them gospel mercy. This means that we should make it a priority to preach the gospel to the Jewish people in that sense. Romans ten one, as Paul says, my heart's prayer for Israel is they should be saved. We should be praying for the people of Israel. Make sure we are not ignorant about his purposes. That's exactly what we've looked at here this morning. The first thing we read was, I do not want you to be uninformed. 
That is Paul's heart, but we know Paul was inspired by the Lord, so that is God's heart. He doesn't want us to be uninformed about this topic. So we need to study the scriptures, and we, do, we need to make sure that we are not arrogant towards them in their state of unbelief. These are some practical things that we can do to um, apply a biblical theology, because we know that theology, if it's not applied, is no good. It's got to have, uh, you've got to have theology applied. So this is what I'd like to leave with you today. Uh, I hope that's been illuminating for you. I know there's always loads of questions. I, I'll, you can come and pepper me with questions if you want afterwards. Um, as Bob said, I do have my, my ministry, some of my resources out there on the table, and you can sign up for my updates and those sorts of things. So uh, feel free to come and chat with me afterwards. I'll just pray and then hand back, out, hand back over. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for all the truth it contains. And I pray, Lord, that these things would edify our heart, Lord. They would just spur us up to serving you with, uh, with greater fervency, Lord God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theologyandapologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.